Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jams Tea Podcast, where we spill the jams and spill the tea, and we're coming at you with a brand new now episode where we talk about everything going on in the world of art and music and all that fun junk. And we're also coming at you with a special topic today for today's episode, and that being terrible songs on albums that we otherwise love, uh, which is going to be a fun little topic just because it causes us to get really creative and have to sort of, you know, at least from my perspective anyway, I had to trawl through some albums I had some particularly high ratings of to find any examples of this because it's a very specific topic. But nonetheless, something fun we will discuss uh, this week. On the channel, we yes. the day we are recording this anyway, had our video on the discography, the whole discography of Lana Del Rey, including her new album, There's a Tunnel. Did you know there's a tunnel under Ocean Boulevard, whatever the fuck that we're reviewing the new album in that we have a guest uh, with us where we talk about the entire discography. It's a really great video to, discussing a very wide array of opinions on albums that vary in levels of quality. It's one of our more, uh, I think, like uh, varied discography uh, episodes. So if you are a Lana fan or familiar with any of her music, go check that out. Mm. It's a good time. Uh, We have some moments where we have some real unity and camaraderie on there where we celebrate some of the particularly canonized records of hers Mm. that uh, complete a bit of a character arc for us just because I know that I've gone on record a couple of times saying that I'm not particularly a big fan of Miss Delray. And uh, this dive certainly deepened my appreciation for her. Uh, So that was kind of nice. Miss Los Del Rio. (laughs) I wonder how many people are actually going to get that reference. <laughs> I'm not going to explain it. Yeah, it was a great, it was a great video, and I, one of my favorite things about it is a sense of a continuous narrative as well. The sense of progression you get mm-hmm. from following Lana's discography and talking about those records in context, I think, benefits them a lot. So, really proud of that video. Also, took a fucking long time to edit. So, uh, any love you could show uh. to that thing would be greatly appreciated by both of us. Also. Wanted to just say a, a quick moment of appreciation, Jake, for your new bisexual lighting, uh, which I don't know if that's intentional, <laughs> but it certainly compliments you beautifully. So well done. I like to think that it happens wherever I go, just, you know, yeah. it, it naturally, honestly, yeah. and I not just like, Netflix cycling through. I also like how the positioning Shit. of your camera makes your whole scene kind of framed like a shot from Skinamarink. Which just makes me really happy <laughs> for some reason. I'm about to get skinamarinked. Yeah, it's going to be a fun discussion about um, songs that kind of sour albums we otherwise love. We'll we'll get to that later on in the episode. First things first, I want to celebrate a couple of uh, album anniversaries that have happened fairly recently as well. Not a huge amount of interesting things in the music world news lately, but album anniversaries always get me going. Uh, very recently, one of the greatest debut albums of all time celebrated its 40th anniversary. I'm of course talking about R.E.M.'s Murmur, an album that had an incalculable Uh. impression on me as a young kid getting into rock music and rock history as well. Also just, I think one of the front to back best debut records ever, just like fucking song after song of killer, perfect jangle pop on that record worth celebrating, worth revisiting. It is an absolute milestone and just one of the most ridiculously fun pop records of the whole 80s, despite sounding so completely different to a lot of what else was happening at that time. Um, also gives me an excuse to shout out my hot take that Reckoning, their second album, is even better. But they're both 
amazing. So go and check that out if you haven't heard it or if you want an excuse to revisit it. Amazing album that is just ages like fine wine. Uh, also want to shout out some more recent anniversaries as well. Some more anniversaries that are more relevant to a time in my life when I was really immersing myself in the music world. Anyone who's been following our channel intimately might've seen that I did a video with friend of the podcast, Zach recently talking about the 10th anniversary of the knife's incomprehensible, bizarro masterpiece, <laughs> shaking the habitual, uh, an amazing record that has had very little, I think, retrospective discussion. So Zach and I were able to bring a lot of perspective to that album that I don't think I've seen. So I'm really proud of that video. I think I understand Great video. It doesn't do as well because the album itself is kind of imposing and difficult to approach, but I think it's some of our best uh, conversation about a record all year. So check that out. Really proud of that. But we had two other staples of 2013 core turn 10 this week that uh, really made, were big throwbacks for me personally. The first of which being Kurt Vile's yeah. Waking on a Pretty Days, which was you know, one of the indie rock albums of 2013, the most direct precursor to the war on drugs, lost in the dream and a deeper understanding as well as a whole host of virtuosic guitar, slacker guitar guys making these sweeping hour long plus albums that just fucking knock your socks off with their complexity, but also with their effortless cool. Uh, even if it's a kind of like loser cool that Kurt Vile has, Awakening on a Pretty, Pretty Days obviously wasn't his breakthrough record. That was 2011 Smoke Ring for my Halo. But I've always connected the most with Waking on a Pretty Days, partly because it was the first one I heard and it was like, it was just mind expanding to be, what was I? I was 16 when this album came out. And it was like around the time of my 16th birthday, actually. And just hearing that opening 10 minute song, it was just a complete odyssey through some of the most gorgeous guitar I've ever heard. We take for granted now because the war on drugs and, and bands like that have made it feel so standard and expected. But what Kurt Vile did with that record is still mind blowing to me. An absolute joy to experience one of the best guitar records of the 2010s. Check that out if you haven't. Love it. Uh, on a very different side of the spectrum, another album that meant a lot to me at that time, came to mean even more to me as I got older, is Charlie XCX's Breakthrough with True Romance. Uh, this was, this is one of the most blog core albums ever, really. Like, I mean, you just look at the album cover of it. You look at her and her like alt girl chic, you know, with the, the ripped up clothes and the completely unkempt hair and a face that somehow still makes her look like she's been around as long as Stevie Nicks. She's just, it's just <laughs> a really just striking and so 2010s impression you get. And I feel like there's been, because this album was pretty beloved by critics and particularly blog critics when it came out, although it took a pretty thorough roasting from general audiences. And I feel like a lot of people look back on True Romance with a kind of sense of distaste and detachment for how kind of not chintzy or cheap or whatever, but just sort of how cute it is. But I swear, go back and listen to this. The songs knock. Nuclear Seasons, Stay Away, incredible tracks. Grins, one of Charlie's greatest songs today. I still think that she is you know, she's got maybe one or two or three songs that I love a little bit more than Grins. But that to me is like one of the peak, like I am 
tweeny and I feel like I'm going to die and I'm feeling everything at once. M83 core, really. Like this album to me has so much nostalgia, so much appeal. It is, she's never made another record like it, I think, which is another reason why it stands out so much to me. You know, especially in the, the sea of similarly blog core 2013 pop records like Sky Ferreira's Nighttime, My Time, Lord's Pure Heroine. Yeah. Even the post grime stuff that was happening that happened slightly before this. I have a lot of fondness for true romance. And I definitely think that record deserves to be appreciated for what it is. And even if Charlie has in a lot of ways very much outgrown it. So I wanted to give a couple of shout outs there for albums that turned 10 this week that made me feel like I was 16 again, listening back to them. There's going to be a lot of segments like this throughout the year, and I can only apologize in advance. 2013 was just, 2013 and 2016, I think, are the best years for music of the 2010s. The most definitive of like, in terms of like, so many different artists ascending and or issuing their best work that would reverberate throughout the rest of the decade and even into the present moment that it's really hard to ignore when these albums celebrate big milestones, especially when you see how far the artists have come since then. 2016 being the great year that it was is probably responsible for my own taste in music, just because that was like, that was right when I met Morgan, when I actually started listening to albums, when I started listening to bands. And I remember one of the first things I ever did to like truly dive headfirst in the music is it was back when I was still using Sputnik music. And I went back to 2016 because it was 2017. And I looked up the top 50 albums on that website for the year 2016. And I downloaded and listened to all of them. Mm -hmm. And I remember that was like in one night, I heard the Deer Hunters Act 5, uh, Aesop Rocks, The Impossible Kid, um, Winter's Gate by Insomnium, like just tons of shit that just completely blew my mind at the time. So Mm -hmm. I have a lot of affinity for that. And 2013 as well was the year I started paying attention to like film and art and stuff. So this is a very particularly nostalgic uh, set of uh, uh, anniversaries, I guess, that are coming up that make us feel like we're 80,000 years old. We could probably do do well talking about some film anniversaries as well. I mean, we could expand our range a little bit mm. there. I think because twenty thirteen was a big year. Was that the that was the uh-huh. year of her right? Like that was the big movie of twenty thirteen. I think her and honestly, that her and Denny Villeneuve's Prisoners are probably still my two favorite movies of twenty thirteen. Yeah, I mean, shit, that was just like. Let me just take a minute. I. I I'll edit it, but I want to just score by Arcade Fire. <laughs> yeah, well, 2013 was the year of Arcade Fire's Reflector. That came late in 2013, mm-hmm. but fuck if 16 year old Riley wasn't listening to that shit a lot. All my indie kid friends were all talking about the new Arcade Fire album at the time, and I again, I didn't even know what an Arcade Fire was, so I was sitting there at the lunch table like. Yeah, I just watched was... a movie about Joaquin Phoenix falling in love with a phone and it made me cry. Yeah, I mean, like, supersymmetry coming in at the end of there. That is, that's an indie kid moment. Inside that's Lewin a... Davis, uh, oh. one of the best underrated Coen Brothers movies. IMO, a, a quintessential, like, music guy uh, movie. Uh, features one of my favorite uh, Adam Driver side performances. The little, like, them doing the singing in the studio and him doing the, oh! 
Oh, I feel like we should lives in my brain. We have free. enough. We have enough. I think of a reason to maybe even do a video on that film specifically because it is Dude, absolutely that that we. I mean, record club on inside Lewin davis the movie just like fuck it yes because there, there is like the music is obviously core to what that movie is as well but there's just so much about it that i feel like we could talk a lot about that movie is incredible oh. and you know yeah and i have um, never fucking... never stopped wanting to be oscar isaac ever oh. since i saw it the world's end edgar wright was this yep. year you want to hear something incredibly tragic in fact i i I, I might have already told you this before, but it's maybe one of the most tragic things that you'll ever hear me reveal about myself. But um, oh God, I experienced my, my first major breakup in 2013. And what the tragic thing is that we were both, before we broke up, we were because we were both huge Edgar Wright fans and we're both really excited for the world's mm-hmm. end. And we were planning to go and see it together. And then we broke up right before it came out. And I was so devastated oh. that I couldn't, bring myself to go and see it and instead i went to see baz lerman's the great gatsby instead oh yep yep so that's the one of those tragic that's one of those tragic things and you know i like the world's end it's my least favorite of the conrado trilogy but i wonder if there's some part of that that's just due to this (laughs) boiling resentment and association with the fact that i should have been happier than i was when i saw that movie <laughs> um so there's uh, that i want to echo what you were saying before about 2016 as well incredible year probably my favorite year for music ever although it's very closely followed by 19 it's up there very closely followed by 1999 but it probably is my favorite year in music ever and i think like if this whatever form jams and tea exists in in 2026 i think we should almost certainly do some kind of uh retrospective on that year oh because dude we could end the show and i would say we should revive jams and tea to do a 10-year retrospective on 2016 2016 because there is is so so much to talk about 2016 is so stacked that you could do 52 episodes of a retrospective every single week of the year and never run out of material absolutely moving swiftly along Let's get into what we have been listening to recently. Some of our favorite highlights in terms of our recent listening. We didn't do a now episode last week as well. So we've got two weeks of listening to draw upon. But Jake, if you want to pick maybe just three or four of your absolute favorite or not necessarily favorite, but things that have stood out to you the most in terms of what you've encountered in the last couple of weeks that you want to shout out to our listeners at home. Uh, Well, I'll quickly talk about the newest album from Ambient Electronic dude tim hecker the newest album from him we have no highs mm-hmm. uh which is his first album since what was his last one his last when one was canoyo was canoyo in 2018 was the last one he put out canoyo okay. slash annoyo the the last era for tim hecker new record very heavily anticipated given that it basically is the longest oh, yeah. he's gone without releasing a proper studio record and yeah, I have thoughts on this one as well, but I'll, I'll let you go first. I really enjoyed this personally. It's a very difficult experience to exactly describe just because I wouldn't immediately compare it to any of the other Tim Hecker projects that I've heard. It feels pretty different from, again, I'm not super storied with him, but from, uh, you know, stuff like uh, Virgins and what have you, I feel like this is very different. It's a little bit more electronically oriented. Um, and overall, it has a very cold aesthetic i think i was continually reminded of 
uh, Boards of Canada, specifically music has the right to children and a lot of the synth tones on here. But it's an album that I say this and I don't mean it in a negative way, but it sounds negative. It's an album that's almost kind of ambivalent to the idea of you listening to it. And it feels that's a very strange thing to say, but it's an album whose almost indifference for the listener yields some really interesting moments. I feel like the highlights on here are like as much as I've enjoyed any Tim Hecker stuff. Uh, the closer uh, living spa waters, this deeply textural, just like gorgeous piece. Um, anxiety is in the back half of it, which I think this album actually like scatters its best material throughout like most of it. And it makes for a pretty satisfying album listening experience. The mm -hmm. opener monotony is just this eight minute gorgeous, like just like glassy synths are all over this kind of thing. And structurally, it's really interesting. There's also stuff like, again, Lotus Light, all of the stuff on here that's like properly long, like north of six minutes is really great really cool but it's also an album that feels very sedentary there's not a lot of forward motion in a lot of these compositions and whenever there is it's very much a left turn it's, these pieces don't really feel like they evolve as much as they disintegrate into something else mm -hmm. and i find that particularly compelling i don't know if anybody else will find that as alluring of a concept as i do but as somebody who's liked this aspect of tim hecker's sound before but hasn't quite heard it explored in the stuff that i've heard from him i found this to be particularly satisfying uh i again i would have liked some more development in some of the other pieces and the kind of interstitial moments but the proper stuff on here is as good as modern ambient music gets it's kind of difficult for me to talk about tim hecker without meeting the inherent abstraction of his music with words and descriptions that are equally abstract and draw upon a very subjective experience of the music just because uh, I think while you've described it beautifully Jake I can't really unpack what it is with the standard kind of critical toolkit I kind of need to get a little bit fuzzy with it and I think this is a sort of record that mm -hmm. demands that as well I mean Tim has always been fascinated by I don't want to say the boundaries of ambient music because I don't even really think he's an ever been or would ever consider himself an ambient artist in the Eno-esque sense of the word, but he is someone who's interested mm. in the inherent subjective effects of evocative nostalgic sounds and you know his early work dominated a lot by the presence of radio static and the presence of this very sort of analog feeling texture that has this hazy hueishness to it that makes it feel very much like it evokes a, a, a primitive technological era and then evolving into his mid-period where you get a lot more organic instrumentation taking front and center with records like rave death 1972 which this reminds me of to some extent but then his experimentations with choir elements and love streams, and then his very left field take on Japanese gagaku music with Konoyo, which I think is one of his greatest records, sorely underrated, a very innovative left turn for Tim Hiko that I don't think enough people really give the time of day. Um, but this new record is interesting because on the one hand, I think it's influenced to some extent by his moving to more towards the area of film scoring as well. He did the score recently to Brandon Cronenberg's new movie, Infinity Pool. But also he's described it and positioned it as well as kind of a response to the state of ambient music as he sees it. And he has a very cynical view 
on the mass produced and heavily sort of AI generated state of Muzak, essentially of this kind of like, you can, you can shit it out, get it on YouTube for 10 hours, this very sanitized and lifeless sterility that he sees in a lot of electronic music and the way that it's used mm -hmm. as this, you know, lo-fi shit to, to sleep and study to. And this is kind of a, a fractious and even frustrated response to that state of music as Tim Hecker sees it. So what you have is a record that kind of exists in this liminal, heavy, but inconclusive state that suggests and even kind of invites you to feel a sense of conventional, even archaic and, and cheap climax that it might be building towards but then to just have you experience the pieces not go there and ha have them just kind of evaporate or curdle or sour into something more sinister it's interesting because the emotional tone it strikes is so inconclusive that it really makes you work to get your own impressions of it and to put yourself into it as well yeah tim is great because he resists the inherent tendency to have this kind of music lean towards a clear and conventional and sometimes even obvious emotional evocation it never really becomes truly dark and it never really becomes bright or radiant or any of those things it exists very in harold this... bud in that respect and i like yeah. that about him I think he's very influenced by Harold Budd and, and Laraji and a lot of uh, Eno's collaborators from that era as well. And so it exists in this kind of murky pool, essentially, this cloudy landscape that the album cover evokes very strongly. And I thought the, the comparison point I thought of the most was Boards of Canada as well, but I thought more of their last album, 2013's Tomorrow's Harvest, which has a similar feeling mm. to me. It's this record that almost deliberately holds itself back from what you would typically go to the artist for or what you would typically go to the genre for and exists in this much more dour and doomier space. I think Boards of Canada take it further because that whole record is about evoking the aftermath of a nuclear apocalypse and this sort of wasteland feeling. I don't think Tim fully goes into that direction, but there are parts where you feel a real sense of bitterness and pessimism that Hecker has towards uh, the state of the music that he's often lumped in with and compared to and maybe even a sense of disillusionment with making music uh, with making records like this I think that may speak to why it's been so long since we've had one from Tim um, but you know I really enjoyed it there were certain moments like uh, Winter Cop reminded me a lot of Corsair uh, the, the semi second to last track yeah. on uh, Geo Getty uh, except it has it's it's like that same feeling that that song has but it's broken up in a kind of Basinski-esque way that I enjoy the frequent co contributions of Colin Stixon on saxophone as well add another kind of it's another way of exploring this sort of sense of inconclusive cyclical stillness basically because Stetson will come in and he'll do these kind of trills that kind of go up and down and up and down but never really have any kind of linear direction to them and also mm -hmm. executed really well alongside the repetitive plinking of monotony as well which the opening track which I think is kind of a great thesis statement too I listen to a lot of music from Ryuichi Sakamoto and uh, his collaborators this week. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that um, as a separate segment when it's my turn. 
but this particularly evoked a lot of the ways in which Ryuichi Sakamoto and his collaborators often explored minimalism as a way to unsettle the listener and to kind of make that to stimulate them rather than to kind of comfort or calm them and Tim is great at doing that I think we also have to talk about this new liturgy album which we, we didn't really formally review only because you know we had two artists with essentially a much bigger profile that we wanted to center our new release reviews mm. around. But this new Liturgy album, you know, Liturgy, famously the transcendental black metal thesis project of one Hala Ravenna, Hunt Hendricks, came onto the scene with the first two albums, Renihilation and Aesthetica, laying out this template for the idea of how the the basic aesthetics and sounds of black metal could be used to cre to create this sort of transcendent state of out-of-body euphoria essentially that's been their thesis with all of the projects they put out it kind of reached a, a new sort of fever pitch with 2019's haqq and i mean i think it's fair to say that this new album 93696 is the most resplendent and astonishing realization of that goal yet for liturgy and for Hala and for everyone involved in this project this is an absolute mammoth i mean it's 80 minute 80 minutes long it's split into these four distinct sections that showcase these various stages of an arc towards personal transcendence you know the idea of gender euphoria and of uh, separation from form is a huge part here of the music as it has been in previous releases as well but there's something about the way in which theme and idea and function meets form meets content meets composition all those kinds of things and the way these two things meld that is in my opinion and i know jake that you agree as well more successful more fully realized more natural more just immediately thrilling than it ever has been before yeah this is the liturgy album I have been waiting to hear since I first heard the artwork, uh, a record club that we did at the very, very, very beginning of this show. And ever since then, we've kind of chronicled our sort of getting into liturgy more and more and, you know, their successive releases since. And never before has it felt so successful as gargantuan as overwhelming and as euphoric as it feels here the sort of glitchy occasional like breakbeat drum tricks that it goes into that was on stuff like haqq is found on here there are frequent passages of just like I, I basically described this as being a 2010s sort of revival Swans album if you mashed it together with a more recent Cult of Luna record and, you know, mashed that in with production from the GOAT himself, Steve Albini, which feels like, again, really rough in the way that you want a Steve Albini produced metal album to sound, but it feels tangible in a way that this band's production rarely feels which is not exactly a problem that the other albums in this discography have but it is, has a distinct weight here that i feel like is really really gratifying like they spend a little bit more like three to four minutes around a more singular stripped back or minimal idea and then segue into the bigger longer more opulent pieces and arrangements and I'm still kind of sorting through my feelings about how the album 
as a record fits together once just because it's divided into several different sections and there are moments where like sections of the record combine together to where there are these more minimal moments happening one after the other and there can be sort of like slightly longer stretches where the proper pieces don't appear for like in like the very center of the record for example but it's just because it's very thorny and I've only listened to the whole thing through once that I don't really have a grip on the flow yet and I have a feeling that problem will probably dissipate the more I listen to this and rest assured I will listen to it more because all of the proper pieces on here Regardless of how you feel about how the album holds together or how you feel about the slider stuff on here, the proper pieces on here are the best thing this band have ever made, and it is not close. Like, and I say that as someone who really loves previous liturgy efforts, who really loves the different things that they bring to the table on all of their different records. But here, this is stunning. This is absolutely something else. It really does feel like we finally reached that kind of all-encompassing you know the transcendental black metal has finally found its true sort of incarnation here everything you would want from energy every little element of their sound you know from the classic burst beats that Halo's become famous for to the glitchier elements that really came to preponder the more out there experimentalism of something like the artwork Everything comes together here. Every element that, and every sonic signifier that Halo's used Mm -hmm. in the past, as well as several more as well. I mean, the way that flutes are incorporated in some of the earlier massive tracks and these kind of, you know, more unconventional, Mm -hmm. ornate instrumentation that has been explored in a more sort of specific space on records like the arc work here are so integrated into these massive swelling transcendental pieces. And I think the interludes are so well used to delineate and to define um, different states and different areas of the record, as well as to kind of echo certain musical ideas or set up later musical ideas in a different format that allows them to hit really, really, really hard as well. It's such a carefully and and well-crafted and well-structured record. uh, I think if you've been skeptical of liturgy in the past, this probably won't convert you because it is just so unabashedly true to everything that liturgy is about, but it does feel as though it is a good thing to point at as the most fully realized achievement essentially of what Hala has been going for with her music ever since she started this idea of creating a state of mind and a sensibility through sound that completely strips you from the tangible world and allows you to achieve euphoria and the record really is utterly euphoric it has this arc through the most oppressive ugly music that represents this embedded state of suffering and it takes you through the arc to the point where in the final stretch of the record you're completely and utterly disembodied from all of that and able to transcend it is gorgeous stuff i mean it's kind of hard to talk about any liturgy record without being a little bit pretentious just because that's the nature of what it is but the, the fucking thing sounds titanic so go and check it out if you haven't already it's a demanding listen but believe me by the time you get to that final stretch it's worth it i listened to an album really curious came out of really like nowhere uh for me uh from a not really a band but a collective of artists called the hers collective and this is interesting because this is a collection of artists that sort of like orbit the modern hardcore sphere and they come together to deliver an album 
that is 30 minutes long and it is basically nothing but grindcore, power violence, and mathcore. And uh, if you know us, you'll know we are connoisseurs of this particular brand of music. And let me just say, this shit fucking whips. 30 minutes and you will get your ass kicked the whole time. There is contributions from Frank Iero of uh, My Chemical Romance. There is contribution from Melt Banana on here, which this song in particular, I can only describe as if the Dillinger escape plan was hyper pop and it's mm. fucking awesome. Uh, Anthony Green of Thursday is also on here vocally. Uh, you have Jeremy Bohm on here. Basically, if you have like a favorite hardcore artist right now or post hardcore artist they're probably on here somewhere uh He's soul got, glow for instance yeah. also makes a vocal Here's feature jordan's on here, on here. Um, surely manson of garbage is on here jordan dreyer uh, of La dispute is on here damien abraham of fuck of uh fucked up is on here like this is a who's uh -huh. who right here for a collective of so many different artists you get so many different flavors of this hardcore sound but at the same time it doesn't deviate enough to be like just like super all over the place it feels like there is an attempt at trying to maintain some sense of unity and one of the cool things about this is that this is very much in the lane of like queer music and queer musicians and it's about sort of you know the modern state of the world which is not particularly great for queer people it's about the housing crisis it's about the economy all that stuff real punk spirit kind of shit honestly it was really cathartic to listen to uh songs on here like sweet light candy uh judgment night the melt banana song xoxoxoxoxox uh or a different kind of bed death or the closer bringing light and replenishments uh this is absolutely a highlight for anybody interested in heavy or loud music that will kick your ass uh, as it is with me. there are moments on this record that legitimately are fear inducing from how loud and scary and aggro they get i've only had a chance to listen to this once so i haven't fully like got wrapped my head around it it is such a blistering experience but it is so unabashedly like in its entire identity and what it is and what comprises it. This is queer art at its finest. Like this is raw, brutal, mm -hmm. but so full of life and effervescent power, essentially, in all of its conveyances. It's so unbelievable how dynamic and intense this is, but also how emotional it is. Oh, yeah. Right there from the title, we're still here, right? And this is a record that is about reminding you. And I love that. I love the album cover so much. Just this kind of like, this hand so made good. to look inhuman and alien with the kind of cyan paint and the nails. And then holding the, the lipstick container that has a knife in it. It's just fucking perfect. Like, this thing is real. It's, it's exactly what fun. the album sounds like. It is um you know it, it's the kind of relentless brilliant queer hardcore art that we are absolutely here to champion all the time speaking of hardcore music that i like to champion uh i love that this is becoming a trend in at least like a sect of music right now just because i really love this sound and this idea and it's inherently just a, a an appealing prospect that's also incredibly technical and super brutal to listen to but we have another addition to the modern mixture of mathcore and black metal 
in the form of the artist Telos. They came out with an album called Delude, which as far as I can tell is like their first major project of any sort. Uh, and again, friend of the podcast, Andres, uh, turned me on to this, uh, same person who turned me on to the Serpent Column. And again, if you are into that kind of stuff, if you like the Serpent Column or if you liked Nightmare Visions from this year, congratulations, you have another record you need to check out. But cool thing about this one is that it's not exactly the same it explores a kind of different facet of this sound that's inherently a bit more it's a bit sludgier and a bit like i'd almost say it's a bit less like fast than something like nightmare visions is uh but this is a lot more atmospheric there's a lot more reverb there's a lot more space in these mixes and it creates an experience that's very very different to like what I would most closely associate with it as its contemporary. So it's certainly, again, not for everyone, but if the prospect of combining two of the most aesthetically kind of, you know, unfriendly genres of music together and making something really fucking heavy together sounds cool to you, Absolutely. In fact, I would say that this is a little bit more beginner friendly than stuff like Serpent Column. I had a fantastic time with it and I can't wait to listen to more of it and I can't wait to listen to more from this band because I am sure that they are worth listening to. The last thing I'll mention here is maybe the most exciting discovery that I've made recently, which is I'm, I'm really getting the feeling that I've discovered a new favorite band of mine, even though I've only listened to like a little bit of like the first part of their career. But knowing what I know about them and what I've listened to has been so amazing and so interesting that I just I, I have to keep going and I have to shout them out just because I am the first person who I know in my circles of, you know, people that I run in who have mentioned them before because I had to discover this on my own. And that is I'm getting really into the Canadian punk band No Means No. And I got into them because I listened to their album Wrong, uh, which is one of the higher rated albums of 1989. And I listened to this and this shit. I mean, to say that this shit is hard undersells it supremely because this is again, this is late 80s and this is really aggressive noise rock post hardcore blended with math rock and like art punk and it just it sounds like this is so ahead of its time you go back to their earlier records and you discover that they were always like this that they were always this inventive they played around with time signatures they started out as kind of a fusion of post-hardcore and jazz rock and that jazziness kind of pervades their entire career and you really feel that in the compositional aspect of this band and it keeps it from being kind of uh it keeps it from getting old i guess in terms of like the the punk music formula the the way they play with everything is so it, it's so smart but it never stops being immediate the way i would describe and sell this band and wrong in particular to people is that this is Basically, more or less, if you combined bad religion, sort of the, the punk ethos of bad religion, the sort of writing style, humor, and kind of heaviness and inventiveness and just general creativity of the alternative metal of a band like Faith No More, 
and just the general eccentricity and out there ballistic nature of something like at the drive-in and obviously i like all three of those bands a whole lot uh and seeing them combined here as early on as their like first couple of albums is astonishing to behold like i i can't believe that this stuff is being made in like 1982 but uh their first sort of definitive statement as a band is 1986's amazingly named sex mad uh which is just a brutal brutal fucking record and it is a ton of fun there is a song on here that is just a 30 second long thing that's just no and it's just no fucking but they fucked around with the letters again this is a very faith no more adjacent band uh in terms of not just their sound but there's a very colorful mike pattonness to a lot of the vocals here um not exactly in the range but just in terms of how dexterously that they're often uh, applied and all across this record it's just a banger from front to back it's a little bit more basic than something like wrong but it like more than makes up for it and how direct and hard-hitting it is and the writing itself is like it's really smart again i didn't compare it to bad religion for no reason there's like really verbose stuff but it's written with that kind of at the drive-in relationship of command style like slanted lyricism on occasion but they that to, to, to pigeonhole them as doing one thing or the other supremely sells them short and after sex mad they have the album small parts isolated and destroyed which is also fucking fantastic this one has more of a brutal prog edge to its sound and it's fucking awesome uh i i really really enjoy when this band get really ambitious like on the title track or the 10 minute long real love on here and they never ever sacrifice it with how heavy hitting everything is this band also have a collaborative album with the frontman of the dead kennedys and i never knew that uh, they it's right in between two of their canonical records wrong and zero plus two equals one mm-hmm. um, and their whole discography is apparently really great they apparently like they never fall off mm-hmm. and they have they have so many different sounds like later they go into the 2000s and their like millennium record one blends like jazz fusion with their sort of punk style they have a cover of miles davis's bitches brew on here mm-hmm. and they like add lyrics to it and it's fucking awesome i took a listen to that and i was just like holy shit this fucking rules and you sort of feel the jazz that was in there like really early stuff coming back into this and then there's uh also like 1995's the world her the worldhood of the world as such uh which is again it's a little bit more like prog infused kind of stuff there's they lean more into like the faith no mori sort of alt metal on why do they call me mr happy uh and i i'm just i'm really really feeling the earlier parts of the band and from what I've heard of the later ones and everything I've listened to them so far is super essential super up our alley Uh, I really recommend wrong as like a starting point to get into the band this is like this is something that I would say really reminds me of like early at the drive-in kind of Steve Albini adjacent stuff like the Jesus lizard uh goat was something that I was reminded of very frequently again (laughs) uh like bad religion early bad religion I I can't say enough good things about this band if you need a cathartic release but you still want something that's like really musically complex and effective 
can't recommend no means no enough it does it seems like they have multiple points at which you could get started uh if you just want something that like hits you in the face straight away sex mad great album it's kind of a little bit underappreciated how innovative the canadian punk and just general rock scene in the 80s was and a lot of that was localized Mm -hmm. to vancouver as well i mean i think the biggest band is probably doa but no means no are also up there as well Mm -hmm. skinny puppy too although they were kind of more sort of industrial than straight punk there's just a lot of really innovative music coming through here and it sort of echoed down the whole west coast as well not just in canada but also obviously through to the malvins in seattle and then down mm-hmm. to Dick Kennedy's in San Francisco as well. It was like this whole sort of coast, coastal sort of uh, scenes that were kind of interactive with each other and produced so many great bands, many of whom have kind of been forgotten or localized to a time that we've yet to really fully revisit. Uh, my my gateway into this whole world, funnily enough, is Nardwar, because obviously Nardwar being a member of the legendary Vancouver-based um I guess punk, but sort of alternative band, The Evaporators, was kind of like an educational point for me, mm-hmm. uh, beginning to understand that history as well. And he has lots of stories about Jello Biafra and other figures of that world uh, along the West Coast. So yeah, I've never listened to No Means No though. So that's, I, I have a lot of motivation now to get into them because they sound really cool. What In terms of what I want to shout out recently, I mean, the biggest thing for me is, and it's something I alluded to earlier when I was talking about Tim Hecker, is that uh, something that kind of knew was going to happen fairly soon, but we're sort of dreading, uh, was the passing of Ryuichi Sakamoto, which happened a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. We talked about Sakamoto in January with the release of his now final album, 12, which is a beautiful exercise in his modern era minimalism that showcases a lot of what he has been doing in his late period. A lot of the focus on space and texture and room tone that interrelates and plays off of his fascination with the power of silence and the power of single notes and all that kind of stuff. He has been excavating and caving into that with his later period releases beautifully. Async, of course, being the masterpiece there. But I dug into uh, two collaborative projects of his with another artist who also works in the minimalist space, that being Alvin Noto. I listened to the two albums that they mm. made together, uh, Ruin and Insen in 2002 and 2005, respectively. They made a third album together later on, I think, but I haven't gotten around to that one yet. Uh, these are two records that I know uh, Morgan is a huge fan of, and I have to thoroughly echo his endorsement as well. These are beautiful uh, minimalist records. This excellent sense of tasteful but slightly discomforting minimalism that has this really kind of satisfying and ear scraping tech tone that reminds me a lot of um ryoji ikeda actually if you anyone enjoys ryoji ikeda's experimentations with glitch and sound collage and music concrete a lot of that is explored in a more sort of friendly warmer space with these two records um Ryun especially uh, is this sort of more inviting and sort of warmer variant of that whereas inseen is a slightly darker more nocturnal tone in its approach to that material and they're both brilliant i can't recommend them both heavily enough i listened to them both at work uh last week while i was trying to get a lot of last minute stuff done before easter and they really satisfied me and it was a great tribute to experience um some of sakamoto's most 
underappreciated music from a particular period where he was really beginning to fully flesh out his particular take on minimalism. So yeah, I, I don't want to make a huge deal uh, out of Sakamoto's passing because we did already sort of pay tribute to him when we talked about 12, but he's obviously one of the great composers of the last 100 years frankly, and his music, both within his solo career with Yellow Magic Orchestra, with his various collaborations with many artists, including Robert Fripp um, and David Sylvian as well, who I'm going to talk about next, is some of my favorite music. And on the note of Sylvian, I want to shout out a particular record of his that I've come to absolutely adore. In fact, I've been falling in love with David Sylvian throughout this year so far. I listened to some of his earlier and most vital records like Secrets and the Beehive and Brilliant Trees. Uh, back in January and now I'm digging a bit more into his later career like to his later career records like the fantastic double album Dead Bees on a Cake and then the interesting pivot that he made in the early 2000s into more electroacoustic laptop based music that is kind of analogous in its pivot in some ways to the shift into extreme avant-garde that scott walker made in his late career but of course sonically owes much more to sakamoto and speaks much more of his influence and how influenced he is by sakamoto who was consistently one of his biggest collaborators across his career and the big album that represents the shift is 2003's blemish which actually turns 20 next month this is a very striking and very beautiful but also very unconventional and unsettling record it is surprisingly frank in its domesticity essentially david sylvian is almost diaristically describing his day-to-day -day life in a very lonely sort of post-divorce state trying to get, get his emotions and his state of mind together over these instrumentals that comprise essentially guitar feedback and weird electronic excursions that are heavily involved with the work of christian finney's who is a collaborator on this project as well plus you have regular guitar oh. contributions from one of the most avant-garde and divisive figures in experimental music that being the legendary guitarist derek bailey who contributes completely atonal very music concrete approaches to playing the acoustic guitar on certain tracks on this record that are that basically, I mean, what Derek Bailey does, he's a whole different conversation to Sylvian, but Derek Bailey's particular approach to improvisational playing on the acoustic guitar is essentially based a lot around doing everything that you shouldn't do with an acoustic guitar and basically <laughs> playing in a way that flies in the face of why, of how the instrument was conventionally designed and is supposed to be played and inverted commas and so his contributions here are striking and difficult but give you a little insight and gateway into his world and how sylvian sees him as a kindred spirit within this particular pivot uh, the most striking pieces here are the bookends the opening track blemish which instrumentally is essentially like the reverb at the start of a late era talk talk album or the first five seconds of a Yola Tingo song, except stretched to 13 minutes with David Sylvian doing <laughs> his spoken word over it and his incredibly ear-meltingly attractive baritone voice. And then the final track, A Fire in the Forest, which is, uh, I think, completely orchestrated by Fenez, is an absolutely stunning closer that 
marks a very powerful point of finality for this intimate and direct project. It, look, it may not be something that resonates with you all that much on a personal level, just because it is so abstract in its nature. But I thought a lot of Paddy McAloon, the front man of Prefab Sprouts, late era oh. records, um, I Troll the Megahertz. And I also thought a little bit of Laurie Anderson as well. Similarly, similar approaches to those artists here. I think if you enjoy what either of those artists do, uh, specifically Patty McLoone in the I Troll the Megahertz era, but also Laurie Anderson in her early era as well. Um, bit of, you know, that kind of very poeticized, but also very direct and slightly kooky approach to musical construction. I think you'll get a lot out of this. I'm very much looking forward to checking out the follow-up to this record, 2009's Manifon, which supposedly takes the abstraction even further. Um, and that is, if it's going to be, if I enjoyed anywhere as much as Blemish, then Sylvian will have fully cemented himself as one of my favorite artists of all time. Uh, he, he is continuously surprising and restless. And basically every record I've heard from him is either completely great or has multiple moments of astonishing greatness that knock my socks off. I mean, just as an aside, the opening track on Dead Bees and a Cake, I Surrender, is this nine-minute trip-hop song that gradually melds into a jazz fusion exercise, and it is simply put one of the most impressive pieces of Hell music yeah. I've ever heard in my life. So, yeah, can't say enough good things about Sylvian. I also want to shout out an artist that friend of the podcast, Connor, has gotten me into, uh, chiefly through the artist's connection to someone that me, Connor, and Jake all love, that being the modern EDM producer, Porter Robinson, who's heavily influenced by this artist. Mm. And the artist in question is the Japanese New Age folk electronic artist, Masakatsu Tagaki. I listened to two of his records in the last yes. couple of weeks. And they both floored me in very distinct ways. The first one I heard was 2004's Koyeta, which is a gorgeous little kind of electro pop ambient acoustic take on minimalist electronica. Fits very much in with the kind of electronic music that was being made around that time by artists like Fortet, for instance. A uh, bit of glitch, bit of postal service in there, a bit of folk music. It's a beautiful melding of different soft electronic and, and aesthetics and you know the how a, a nice exercise in probing the relationship between folk music and minimal techno you know things that you might not think are all that similar but have a lot of textural similarity and overlap and Koyeda really explores that beautifully I think no coincidence that there is also a vocal feature from David Sylvian on this album the worlds have just been colliding for me with these listens but the really striking record and the clear masterpiece from what I've heard from Takaki so far, his most celebrated record is 2014's Kagayaki, which is a sprawling opus of various different sonic explorations of Tagaki's homeland in Japan, the various places that mean the world to him, the people, the cultures, the feelings, the whole thing is this journey. And it has some incredibly stunning piano playing, some incredible arrangements from various for various forms of instrumentation. I can only trivialize a record this beautiful by describing it. It at first seems somewhat fractured in the way that it approaches various different musical ideas. 
but it is one of those things where the cumulative effect of it, especially when you get into the home stretch, has this sense of emotional intensity that completely bowled me over. Mm -hmm. Like there are points towards the end of this record where I almost had tears in my eyes, appreciating the scale and sentimentality of the music without being overly treacly or, you know, sappy in any sense. It is one of the most joyful albums I've heard in a very long time. And I can see why it's one of Connor's favorite records of all time. I talked about listening to this last year when Jacob Sanchez was on the show, I think. And I described it as like living inside a Studio Ghibli movie. So if you want that kind of aesthetic experience, then just like put this on. I know it's long, but trust me, it is completely worth it just for that cumulative effect that you get from it putting you inside a world and an environment that is totally engrossing. I'm going to finish off by talking about two new releases that we don't necessarily have enough time to review formally, just because of the fact we were so focused on the Rustin Kelly and the Wednesday albums, which you should go and check out those reviews if you haven't. Really proud of those. But there are a couple of new records that came out on the same day as those two albums that I wanted to shout out. The first is the first album in seven years from the indie pop band Daughter. Uh, they were... I think one of the fixtures of mid-2000s kind of hazy, gauzy indie pop. I associate them a lot with Wolf Alice, for instance, but they have their own distinct appeal and their own distinct perspective that makes them feel uh, separate from the pack. And especially so on this new record that they've put out, Stereo Mind Game. Again, it's the first album from them after a lengthy hiatus. And in a lot of ways, it feels like their best set of songs yet. I think uh, it doesn't do anything that reinvents the wheel, or that is particularly unique. But then again, neither did the Rustin Kelly album, and I still have a lot of affection for that. And I feel similarly about the Daughter record. It has some of the band's best songs, Party, Neptune in particular, and a slightly harder-edged production that reminded me a little bit of The National in certain ways, but also has this, I don't know, this really enveloping, spacious feel that is so anchored by the front woman and her presence as a performer. I can very much see this being a comfort record for me that I'll return to quite a bit throughout the year. And I think that if it appeals to you, if any of the reference points appeal to you, absolutely check this out. It is a very easy listen and its highlights are irresistible. I also want to shout out one of the more unconventional records of the year so far. That is the latest from the burgeoning windmill scene. Uh, but it marks a major step forward for the particular band in question being a band called hmltd uh which apparently ah, yeah. is short for happy meal limited um you know these guys are is weird. it really yeah these guys are, are weird these guys are all over the shop but i was really taken with their new album which is their second record it's called the worm and yeah. it's kind of like the most obvious reference point is black midi it has a real sense of irreverence and approach to and love of 70s prog that Black Midi has. And that is specifically channeled into this rock opera sci-fi narrative about this mythical worm that's terrorizing medieval England. And of course, the worm itself is a metaphorical embodiment of the narrator's anxieties and a whole bunch of other things as well. It's very theater kid. It's very... Like, that's a windmill scene album all right oh yeah but honestly the thing that the record it reminded me the most of or like the thing it reminded me the most of from last year is actually the callous dowboys album celebrity therapist i think it has Ooh. a similar sense of 
irreverence and playfulness with its influences that makes it feel as though it's never just pure pastiche like it could be and i think that they apparently have been in the past if the reviews are anything to go by this feels like a real like a real clear statement it has this whole overarching concept that it follows through from start to finish really effectively it's never really stays on the same musical idea for too long but at the same time each little facet of its influences that it explores it does really well and with a lot of character there's an extended riff on nina simone's sinner man in the second last track here that i found to be surprisingly All stunning right. and the whole album has that kind of you don't know what it's going to do next feel to it but yeah i think you might have limits with it if you're not all that into the more black midi purely exuberant and expressionistic side of the scene but i still think that it's worth giving a chance it's a tight 40 minutes it's full of surprises it made me laugh out loud on multiple occasions and it made me feel a genuine emotional response on multiple occasions as well so that's about as much as i could hope for from a band as forwardly silly as hmltd so definitely gets a recommendation from me all right Let's get into our main topic of discussion today, which is albums we love with one song. One song we just wish wasn't on there. And specifically the thing here was to highlight records that, again, we do have a lot of affection for them. And a lot of cases, we love these albums so much that it's very easy to forgive these songs. But they are still things we have to forgive. And in the case of at least what I've picked, they're things that... Because sometimes there are great albums that have songs you don't like that but are still kind of a part of what the record is going for. And it's like, you just give them yeah. credit for that. It just doesn't quite resonate with you like the rest. But then there are albums that have songs that kind of just mystify, that kind of feel like they go against <laughs> everything else the rest of the record is doing so well. And that's what I've tried to capture with my picks today. And, and I'm curious to hear, Jake, what your approach to this prompt was and what your particular picks are as well. So why don't you lead off the discussion today? I, I definitely see two different sides of this prompt where there is albums that have like one song on it that's relatively underwhelming or that you might not get a lot out of, but is very much a part of the album experience. And then there's the concept of the song that sticks out as being like the one bad song on an otherwise amazing album. And that's a, both of which are kind of like the, the former definitely more common than the latter. Mm. Uh, but I tried to run the gambit and pick a little bit of both. And as you mentioned earlier, I want to pick a sort of honorable mention here as a quintessential example uh, of this concept. And that being uh, the song Two Wildly Different Perspectives off Father John Misty's Pure Comedy. And I feel like that this is a great example of almost both in that I feel like every other song on Pure Comedy is substantially better than Two Wildly Different Perspectives. And also, this is so key to understanding the core of this actual record and the perspective that it's written from that I wouldn't take it off the album, even though I think this song sucks. I make no apologia for this song whatsoever. It's terrible. And the reason it's terrible is easy to say is because the lyricism on here sucks ass. And when I say that, I mean, it is very much, it's basically doing the the both sides thing for like politics because Pure Comedy is this album that's mired in the whole like, you know, perils of the modern world bullshit. And the, the sort of, this is just sort of the reducing it to, well, 
both sides do bad things. So who is the real bad side? Are we all just bad? It's literally like one side says, go to hell. The other says, if I believed in God, I'd send you there. One side says, kill them all. The other says, line those killers up against the wall. And his lack of interrogation of these two different sides is just like, all right, Josh, whatever, man. And it, it's musically boring as shit. It's it's just like, it, bad song, great album. Just wanted to mention that as an honorable mention because it is a great example of kind of both. But my most proper pick uh, first on here is uh, I don't know if this is going to be contentious, but um, this is from and one of my favorite albums of all time, that being Nujabi's album Model Soul. Uh, and the song that I picked off of this is Signs. And I, I, I th this is a particularly beloved record. I know that, for instance, Morgan considers this one of his favorite uh, hip hop albums of all time as well. Uh, and I mean, again, so do I. This has some of the best hip hop jazz rap production ever. Uh, I think that is particularly the front half of the record is just fucking immaculate in terms of its perfection and the sign is the first moment that like part of the reason it's on here is because it sort of interrupts that run of perfection for me and this whole thing is just it embodies a certain limitation with Nujabees and that Nujabees is, is a like a, a a an artist that sort of puts together a lot of like beats and instrumentation with various different guests there's lots of guests throughout this entire record and you get different various ideas for songs on here that execute their ideas in different ways and the idea on the sign is to have the featured artist pace rock and he just kind of says things and it's supposed to like be this sort of like conscious song in this respect and to me it kind of completely fails at this idea just because it's 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 saying it with this like gravity right it's trying to present this idea of signs for people as being like emblematic of societal ills or just like aspects of humanity and i don't know what it's trying to say because it's so vague it's like it's trying to be observational and the actual like performance of these like the lyricism is so boring <laughs> like it's just having like and i read the signs and it's the a, signs are pointing in the wrong direction it's the signs it's are the, not naming the streets thing about the thing about the the features on that album is that they're most for the most part incidental they're kind of a texture that yeah Jabez yeah. uses in the midst of building these worlds essentially that he's so great at constructing and so the worst thing that any of these features can do is take you out of that immersive experience take you out of it it really is an immersive experience and i'm not i don't want to be too raw dog negative on the the features on that album even though i don't really think most of them add to the experience all that much but you do strike upon moments where it feels as though the feature is purely perfunctory and i think in the case of the sign which i probably like a little bit more than you or maybe a better way of putting it is i may be able to forgive a little bit more than you 
is that it still regardless feels as though I am being taken out of that immersion by this really clunky delivery yes. and this somewhat mixed metaphor approach uh, that, you know, you don't want lyrical miracles. Some of us do not see the signs because we are too busy shopping. Some of us do not see the signs <laughs> because we can't help but stop and look at the accidents and stare. We are in a daze. We are amazed by the world's displays. Lyrical, miracle, spiritual. <laughs> I'm sorry. We don't, I couldn't we don't make it past. Because we're giving fair change to the homeless. We're getting gas. We're volunteering for duty. What are you fucking saying? <laughs> I'm sorry. I One time we're, we can't see it because we're shopping. The other, we can't see it because we're giving change to the homeless. What is so fucking important about the signs, motherfucker? I can't get past we, we couldn't see it because we're shopping like dude <laughs> let's um take a step back here women be shopping it, it's it, it's just again it's like oh because we we don't look at the signs because we're b doing bad things we're obsessed with materialism but we also don't look at the signs because we're we're helping people and i'm like what what does this metaphor even mean at the end of the day and i know people are just gonna be like it's about the vibe man like one of nujibi's most celebrated releases is the compilation lovesick hexology which is like this like this suite basically of this rearranged beat over and over again and anybody who's listened to that will tell you that the verses on that easily the worst part of it they are purely textural like the guy rapping on top of them is a functional lyricist at best i love that project but it is not helped by him at all and this I... is epitomized on here being like th this is just something that the production on this is great i like the sound of it it's just that if you took <laughs> this guy off the song the album would simply be better I, I really want to hear for if there's someone out there who, who by any chance watches this, I just really want to hear from someone who really rides for the features on the New Jabez albums. I want to hear someone who really just can't yeah. get enough of that shit. Seriously, I'm not joking. Well, I kind of am, but I'm also not. No, for real. Um, I want to see and, that perspective. Absolutely. And look, I... Because I'm, I'd be listening to Modal Soul in like 2017, 2018, and like hearing this and just being like, dude, can you shut up? I'm trying to write a term paper. Like, I'm just trying to like, <laughs> I'm just trying to vibe here. I'm trying to like create some immersive experience where I can like focus my brain and feel at peace. So the stress that I'm under is you know, completely melts away, which is one of the things I use Nujibis for mm -hmm. is when I'm stressed. Nujibis yes. music is a great way of just kind of, you know, releasing, relieving that tension Absolutely. and calming you. And so you don't need to hear, you know, problem is shopping. As like a counterpoint to this, I think that the second song on here, Ordinary Joe, uh, that Mr. Uh, Terry Callier on here, not the most compelling vocal presence, not the most compelling writing wise, bar wise. And I still love this song. It's still great. It still epitomizes all the great things about Nujibis. And again, I can't stress this album is a masterpiece. I love it. It's just that this one aspect of their sound manages to crystallize all of the potential ways in which a song like this can kind of just miss 
And it's it's unfortunate just because the vibe throughout the rest of the record is so immaculate. And this is just smack dab in the middle of the track list. I it's just... like literally the front half of this album is some of my favorite music ever put. Like you have Lovesick Part 3, Music is Mine, Eclipse, Reflection Eternal, which is literally like Reflection Eternal has my favorite hip hop beat in all of music. Like this is my favorite piece of hip hop production of all time. I could listen to this song on repeat forever and never get bored and then the sign just comes in and it's like a fucking boulder in the middle of like a formula one race and it's just like oh man fucking all right fine get also to the like second half sub substantials feature on eclipse which is just before this as you say i think is the best yeah. feature on the album some genuinely like emotional performance yeah. happening on that song some great lyricism and yeah. then just to be hit with pace rock and i want to just shout out you know all love to pace rock if if he's still out there still making music still around i hope he is you know nothing nothing personal it's just you know come on dude i like that his one album that he's made is <laughs> called bullshit as usual which is just like the exact title of a record <laughs> I would expect from someone writing that verse on that song. So, you know, all love to Pace Rock, just, yep. you know, maybe, maybe not that verse. So for my first pick today, I'm going to talk about, um, I don't think any of my three picks will be all that unusual or controversial. They kind of, I genuinely agreed to be the weak points on these respective records. Although I'm sure that there will be some people who might ride for these. And in fact, I think the first one I'm going to talk about today is maybe the song I think the most people i could imagine the most people writing for even if it is pretty unequivocally the worst song on the album in question and that is the lcd sound system song somebody's calling me from their 2010 landmark record this is happening now first thing you need to know about this record if you didn't already know it and if you don't already know that much about lcd sound system is that you know one of the most successful indie i guess indie is a very loose term for what they do but one of the most successful dance electronic acts of the 2000s kind of building this momentum and steam around their canonical 2007 record sound of silver which is a masterpiece and then writing off of those waves to the ultimate tribute to all of their influences and the ultimate infusion of those influences into this modern triumph of music nerd uh, euphoria, basically, with this album, which is a euphoric and very nerdy album that is so indebted to its influences, but takes all of those influences to the stratosphere. I mean, all I want, the centerpiece of this album, is just a ripoff of David Bowie's Heroes. It is deliberately doing the Robert Fripp <laughs> guitar sound and you know what? It is as good as Heroes. I'm not even exaggerating. That song is that good because it just fully buys into everything that Heroes is about and takes it to this new level that makes you remember what you loved about the original song, but also feel this pang of emotion that's so deeply tied to how this song is basically about love in the same way that heroes is but but the love is has a different dimension because it's also about the love of the song heroes to a certain extent and everything it stands for so that's what the appeal of this is happening is is it regularly and routinely evokes these influences evokes these sounds in a similar way to what daft punk would do with random access memories a record which we're going to celebrate its 10th anniversary very soon in a similar way in which that record would go on to do that, this is happening, does that, and it does that in a very indie nerd music guy way. And I love it. But the one moment where it really falls short is somebody's calling me, which if you don't already know, again, just like all I want is just deliberately ripping heroes completely and making it work because it's just that good. 
somebody's calling me is directly ripping Iggy Pop's nightclubbing from The Idiot, which is his, you know, legendary breakthrough record, his solo breakaway from the Stooges, his fully full embrace of the underbelly of punk and the you know, the way in which punk is influenced by industrial music and would give way to the music of the 80s. It's a really foundational record. And Nightclubbing is a great song because it's the sinister, eerie underbelly to the experience of being in the club very high and very completely out of your head and just totally dissociated from all the other people around you. And it is this kind of subversive, warped take on the club song from Iggy Pop's perspective that is also fundamentally about the just total disembodiment of heroin and the lifestyle. And so Somebody's Calling Me, if you didn't already know, is a complete rewrite of Nightclubbing by Iggy Pop. It is this basically a very similar instrumental, a very similar progression. It is twice the length, but that's okay because everything is fucking 10 minutes on this album and it's just fine. But mm-hmm. it, the somebody's calling me is the only moment on this is happening that has no real sense of adding to the pastiche in any way or building on the pastiche. It is just nightclubbing, but worse. It has this sense of stately plotting, just a refusal to move forward. That again is similar to in theory, to the beat and to the music and instrumental of nightclubbing, but so much less dynamic and so much more kind of stilted and ugly. There are these blaring, distorted and heavily compressed synths, deliberately so, that come in to really emphasize that how fractured the mind state of James Murphy is in this place. But none of it works. It all feels like the one moment where murphy's attempt to evoke a very specific and very clear influence just sounds like someone doing bad karaoke and with a a, with you know how some karaoke bars because they can't do copy they can't get past copyright or whatever will just have like a really cheap cover version of the instrumental and you'll just sort of sing over that that's what this feels like is it feels like a cheap cover of the original with these weird effects that are added to give it the LCD sound system flair that don't really work. And also, crucially, the whole thing just shoots a fucking bullet hole in the pace of the album, which already is a long record that in its back half is, with tracks like You Wanted a Hit and Pow Pow, is already leaning into some of its more kind of digressive and more i guess languorously paced material and then somebody's calling me just completely slows the album to an utterly dead stop and it's a testament to how powerful the closing track home is that the record still feels satisfying when you get to the end of it because that is an amazing closing track and again the whole album's fantastic front to back except this song which feels like such a mistake and feels like such a rare moment of failing to do what LCD sound system are built to do, which is be this retroactive retrospective celebration of 80s, 90s, 70s nostalgia through the lens of this incredibly nerdy record producer, washed up record producer who is very nostalgic for this particular part of his life. You know, the whole appeal of LCD sound system is captured so beautifully across that record 
except for in this one moment where it just kind of feels like a bad imitation. So yeah, that's my first pick. Somebody's calling me. I'm sure some people out there do really like this and I can see an angle on it. But for me, it's always just stood out like a sore thumb on an otherwise great album. As somebody with like no familiarity with LCD sound system, I like I can only picture in my head the Rockwell song, Somebody's Watching Me. <laughs> Like in my head, every time you say that, that's what I think of. I really need to listen to LCD Sound System. You do. They're um, amazing. I really do. My next pick on here is an artist that I mentioned somewhat recently, and that being pop legend Elton John. And this song comes from his biggest, his most acclaimed album. And it's, it's difficult to say whether or not this or Brown Dirt Cowboy is my favorite Elton John album. I go, I waffle between the two of them. But this is from Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which is, you know, the, 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 the album you want every great artist to make, where they just throw caution to the wind and make a big-ass double album that was more than likely fueled by copious amounts of cocaine and an insane amount of record label money, and that is exactly what fueled this. And, of course, this contains some of his best, most beloved songs. I mean, like, the first stretch of songs on here is just standards. You have his best song that starts out the album, which is Funeral for a Friend slash Love's Lies Bleeding, which is this immaculate progressive rock, progressive pop song, which is just the, the best thing he's ever made. Candle in the Wind, Benny and the Jets, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Song Has No Title, uh, Grey Seal, all of these songs are fantastic great leg of the record and then at the very end of the b-side you get jamaica jerk off and this is one of those instances where i kind of it's of the sort of two examples of kinds of picks for this this is the bad song that i still kind of begrudgingly have an affinity for despite knowing that it's bad just because within the context of this vast tapestry this huge indulgent double album where he indulges in so many different aspects of his sound and so many different genres and so many different things that you know doing a a, a, a reggae pastiche doesn't sound like a like the worst idea ever and it's it's not the worst thing ever it, it, Elton John has certainly done worse, more hollow pastiches of different genres. I talked about one of his records uh, when we talked about great or bad albums from great artists, in fact. Yeah. Um, and everything on there is much worse than this. Uh, this still sounds pretty good. It's enjoyable. It's got a swing to it, but it's also cringe <laughs> because, I mean, you're never going to escape the fact that Elton John, who is, you know the whitest cream just the the most british of men and he's doing a genre that has some deep roots in some cultures that aren't his and hey you know what from the outset that's that's not exactly inherently a bad thing sometimes well, that's the history of popular music is white people culturally it, yeah you can culturally appropriate and make great music i mean the beatles did that to chuck berry and the beatles are the beatles so you know a, a, on some level who cares but at the same time you have posh ass elton john who's so you know cocaine addled at this point he probably wouldn't know a good idea from a thumb up his ass uh he, he just was so good and so consistent that he just didn't have to worry about you know potentially executing a bad idea it's just that this song is so default i guess when you imagine what 
a, a, a song like this, him executing it, it, it just kind of sounds like that. And he has a, he kind of hits a falsetto in this song. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a bit ear scraping, frankly. It's, it's not the most pleasurable to listen to. I just can't really excuse it. There's no complicated reason as to why this is my pick here. It's just a quintessential example of an artist who, you know, is shooting for the moon and, and doing something really, really ambitious and something that's like sprawling and that I really respect. But it also goes to show you that sometimes, no matter how great an artist is or how much respect I have for that artist, they can still miss the mark for every time you have a Pink Floyd making the wall where I think all of the ideas do stick together. You have Yellow Brick Road where most of them do and not all of them. And I, I can't quite give myself over fully to the no, but it's good, actually, just because when I listen to it, I'm just kind of like. Well, with the, with the level of quality God. control that Elton and Benny had at this particular period as well, there is no excuse. Like, yeah. The, it, it, that's the sort of thing that makes this kind of selection all the more irritating is that, you know, there's a, there's a sense with yeah. which there's so much cohesion and so much of a fully realized vision that's executed so beautifully. And then you just have this thing that makes no sense in that context. And I'm going to say it, it doesn't mm -hmm. inspire an encouraging thought when you see a, an Elton John reggae song, that's just called Jamaica jerk off. Like you're not thinking, yeah. you're not going into this thinking, Oh man, he's really like giving his, giving it his best, you know, his best shot here. It really just is presented as though, and sounds as though it is, pure fucking around which doesn't land yes. on this album it is very frivolous in a way every other song on here is not like i mean even the other songs on here that i would say like i would put in like the bottom tier of songs on this album like uh your sister can't dance or dirty little girl they're still bare minimum much fucking better than this song like again the the gap is vast it's wide and it, it also just kind of discourages you from the fact that it's like when you are listening to a big titanic album like this trying to recommend it to people is you know kind of somewhat difficult because you have to get them to listen to the whole thing and it's just like oh it's this great album it's this great experience almost all of it is great like you're never going to to win over more people by saying almost all of this album is worth listening to like it just puts a <laughs> wrench in it you just really frustrated and you're just like damn it <laughs> yeah a good a good gauge for for picking selections for this is like it's got to be an album that you would easily and happily recommend to someone but where there's something you would absolutely mm -hmm. dread having to talk about with them you know where everything else yeah. is just great and then you just dread the fact that, oh man we're gonna have to talk about jamaica fucking jerk off so yeah yeah i haven't listened to this in full but i did check out jamaica jerk off just to get a sense of it after seeing you picked it and this is it's garbage to me like i can't what <laughs> what is this um my my second pick today is a kind of a song in fact, that in a lot of ways is sort of similar to my first pick, Somebody's Calling Me, in the sense that it is a really plodding, slow track led by a very repetitive and monotonous synthesizer part. It's also a song that I have tried so hard over the years, more than the other two. This is a song I've really wanted to get on board with. But ultimately, if I'm being brutally honest, it fucking sucks. And it really sucks. And this is the most upset that I am with any of my picks because it is the closing track on the album. 
So this is my favorite, one of oh. my favorite records of the 80s. My favorite New Order album, Brotherhood. A record that compared to the other New Order records around it tends to get a little bit overshadowed, but I actually think is, well, it's pretty close between this and Low Life. And Low Life doesn't have a song like the one I'm going to talk about, which is Every Little Counts on it. So maybe Low Life is a little bit better. But I love Brotherhood the most. It has this, so many of the most underrated New Order songs on it, as it is where it was. Paradise, Weird, oh, the incredible Weirdo, Angel Dust, All Day Long, Broken Promise, Way of Life. In fact, I would say Weirdo, as it is when it was, Way of Life and Angel Dust are all some of the most underrated New Order songs and some of my favorite New Order songs, along with, of course, the juggernaut that is Bizarre Love Triangle, which is the song everyone comes to this record for. I think that Brotherhood is from front to back, amazing, yeah. and is such a good fusion of the guitar aspects of New Order with the electronic aspects of New Order. Like more than any of their other albums, this is a, a guitar and rock focused record front and center, which is what makes it so intriguing when surrounded by records that would lean a little bit more into the dancier aspects of New Order. I love this album for the incredible guitar work that is all over it, particularly from Bernard Sumner, who's just completely killing it. And Gillian Gilbert as well is great on this too. But then it ends with Every Little Counts, which is a fucking joke song. Okay, so like, <laughs> especially because Angel Dust, which is the song right before it, would have been an amazing closer. Like, I love this song. All Day Long oh. and Angel Dust, front to back. The third, last, and second last songs on this record have this huge sense of finality to them that I adore. And if you treat the record as ending at Angel Dust, it's this perfect eight song capsule yeah it might be a little bit short it would probably only be about 33 minutes but who cares right and then you have every little counts which again i'm kind of in a similar boat to you with elton john where like it's not the worst song in the world really it's just like you have this immaculate record heavy hitter after heavy hitter or heavy hitter in between low-key amazing deep cut that no one remembers into heavy hitter and you're just like boom 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 and then you get this song that, if you don't know it, let me just read you the opening verse so that you get an idea of the tone here. Every second counts when I am with you. I think you're a pig. You should be in a zoo. It's like a fourth grader trying to write his first rap verse. It is a joke song, deliberately. It is a song about being affectionate towards someone that you want to fucking strangle. But wow. And and also that is worth noting as well that that line is deliberately delivered by Bernard Sumner who who actually bursts out laughing while singing it as if he can't <laughs> even get through it. And the whole thing, like that's, towards the end when he's like, every second counts when I'm with you, even though you're stupid, I'll still follow you. The smile on your face always stays in place. <laughs> every second counts when I'm with you. It is, again, it's a really stupid song. It's kind of, it's funny in a lot of ways. There's a cheap novelty to it. It sounds like, instrumentally, it's like an orchestral maneuvers in the dark demo that was deliberately abandoned because there was really nothing to do with it. It kind of just does this bouncy synth thing over and over and over again with this cute little melody intertwined within it. And then it has this just baffling and very hilarious ending where basically it's like the tape gets corrupted and the whole thing just sort of like gets swallowed up and melts and then the album's just over and you're like what the fuck was that <laughs> it's like a 
what it's it's like if they did this album in the 90s this would be a bonus track that was hidden after 10 minutes of silence basically and maybe that would be worse <laughs> or maybe that would be better because maybe it would be easier to ignore in that case but yeah, i don't probably. i don't get it man i i it's funny in isolation it's a nice joke song it's the kind of thing you would send to someone you know to to deliberately sort of say fuck you but also that you're affectionate towards them but it is no place on this album. It doesn't make sense. It completely sours that final experience, especially with like all day long, in case you don't know. I mean, this is a song about child abuse and this is a song about suffering. And this is a, there's a lot of darkness on this album, right? And Angel Dust especially is one Ooh. of the most morose, but also at the same time, ridiculously catchy and, and just intense New Order beats that, I love this album so much. And it's the same thing as what you were saying, Jake, whereas when I recommend this, someone's like, no, no, low key, Brotherhood, one of the best, if not the best New Order albums. People just don't talk about it enough. I've got to try and sell that while every little counts exists. And I know that when I recommend Whoa. this to someone and they listen to it, I know that that's going to probably bring down their rating or it's probably going to leave them, especially because it's the closing track and what ends the album matters so much to the final impression you get to it. Oh yeah. It just really sucks that I have to, that it has to exist and it really annoys me. So yeah, I have a personal grievance with new water for leaving that on. If you listen to the reissue, the it's actually the penultimate track because they add state of the nation as the closer which is a non-album cut from the time and i think that definitely works i mean it works better as a closer than every little counts does but still i think that the best version of brotherhood is my hypothetical version where it just ends with angel dust and that is the album and it's 33 minutes and it's perfect but it isn't the reality that we live in and I have to confront that. And so honestly, when I was thinking of what the segment should be this week, I happened to be listening to a song on this album and I thought, you know what? I have a fucking grievance with this and I'm going to build a fucking now segment purely around me having an excuse <laughs> to talk about this grievance because I hate it. And yeah, but it's not the worst song of my three choices. And that will be the one I get to last. Oh. Um, so Jake, anyway, what is your next pick? Uh, my last pick here, similarly, I think is probably the worst song of the the three uh, proper picks that I have. And we've talked about it before, technically, uh, because we did our 1991 retrospective. And in that 1991 retrospective, we talked about Queen. We talked about their, what is their final album with Freddie Mercury, at least, album, Innuendo. Uh, and it's it's a close call just because there are a couple of top tier queen albums in my opinion and i'm not sure where i would sway right now but i say like i'm like 80 percent confident in saying that innuendo is my favorite queen album and it's because it's building off of all of these tendencies that they've had through across their entire career really where they build from the like some of their progressive rock leanings that were at the very beginning the kind of heavy metal that was there too and a kind of more like hard rock stuff that comes from something like sheer heart attack but you know that they're they're combining lots of different things on here and it's not like a big huge sprawling ambitious album it's a pretty tight record all things considered and they do a lot of distinct ideas really really well uh and we talked about that album and we had a good time discussing it. However, there was one 
thorn in my side. And this epitomizes the like when I recommend a Queen album to people because Queen are a band that are not thought of as an album's band. And I really hate that narrative because for the most part, like, yeah, I understand it because they have some of the most omnipresent rock and pop singles of all time and nothing is ever going to change that. But at the same time, they are a band that respect the album format in terms of their artistry. And I think that that goes really undersung with a lot of their stuff. And when I try to sell Innuendo as, at the bare minimum, one of their best records, there's that fucking, there's the Sword of Damocles fucking hanging over my head whenever I mention it. And that sword's name is fucking Delilah, uh, which just kind of comes out of nowhere, unfortunately. Like, especially in the, the back half of this record, which I think is particularly strong because it ends with songs like These Are the Days of Our Lives, The Hitman, Bijou, and The Show Must Go On, which are, I mean, some of the best Queen songs, period. Especially The Show Must Go On, one of their most beloved, probably their best album closer, as a matter of fact. And Delilah is just a song about Freddie Mercury's cat and with look, the with I'm the meowing saying, can we can we just with with the meowing the actual cat meows and even Freddie kind of tries to <laughs> kind of sound like a cat in part well, I'm talking just, about Freddie it's, it's oh. cringe oh no I mean there's 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 just a there's a lot of choices on here that are regrettable and but but like from a when you just take a step back and look at it and you, you look at all of these songs on here that are, you know, the ambitious opener in terms of the uh, the title track or the show must go on or ride the wild wind. These, these, these songs that are about what all great queen songs are about, these big emotions, these big scopes, and they execute it with a, a verve and a theatricality that's that's really alluring and really appealing to somebody like me. And then you just have a fucking song about Freddie Mercury's cat in the back half of this album. And I just, why? It, it, it goes directly against all of what the other songs on this album are. And I get it. Queen or a band that have always had a sense of humor about themselves. They've never taken themselves too seriously. And that's why they're a great band. Except this just, this doesn't work as a funnier queen song like there are good cheesy songs on here there's the fucking hitman on here i fucking love this song it's ridiculous but i fucking love it because it's hard as fuck it's got brian may some of his best guitar licks of like the their entire discography and then this there's just nothing musically about this that's that animates it and it's just it's it's freddie like literally just being like kind of pissy about his cat that sometimes pees on his floor and like on some level i almost kind of respect the irreverence that goes into putting a song like this on here but at the same time it's just like man put it as a bonus track because again it it, it literally does everything that a like a bad song on a great album can do and it just like fucks up the flow it's nothing like the rest of the other songs on here it, it it creates a disruption it makes it difficult to recommend to people because you're just like uh yeah there's also one song on here that you should probably just like fucking like i am very much not the kind of person that advocates for skipping songs in any context on any album unless you know it very well just because i think that's disrespectful to the album as an art form no that sounds pretentious but it's how i it's just how i feel but at the same time, it's just like, this is so superfluous and fluffy and it just does 
not need to be here in every respect. There is no measurable way in which taking Delilah off innuendo doesn't make it a better album. And it kills me because this is very likely my favorite Queen record. And if it didn't have it on here, I would be I'd be so fucking tempted to give this album the full five stars. You have no fucking idea how tempted I would be. But with this there, I'm just like, I fucking I can't. Mm. fuck that's, you you stupid that, ass cat that's the feeling exact feeling i wanted to channel with this discussion topic and actually delilah is a fairly similar has a fairly similar issue to that new order song i just talked about where it's just like it's frivolous in a way that i think the new order song is maybe more egregious because that's frivolous in the context of a record that has a lot of really kind of seriousness to it whereas i guess the frivolity mm, fits definitely. in with queen on innuendo but it is just also so at odds with the actual actually involving and musically exciting frivolity that is all over innuendo and makes it feel like such a great yes grand capturing of queen at this final juncture so yeah great pick i i remember it well from when we did our 1991 retrospective and i do not wish to revisit it my final pick today is one that is notorious in jams and tea history because it is from an artist that we all love from an album uh, that we're not all yeah. in agreement on, but certainly this is a song we can all agree on. We all think it's good. We all like the album to varying extents, but we all agree that mm-hmm. while the album has issues, none are more egregious than this particular song. So the band in question is Deftones. The album in question is Saturday Night Wrist. And the song in question is the notorious pink cell phone, which I debated on whether I should even include on my list because it feels like so obvious and we have talked about it before. But then again, it's been a while since we've talked about it. And a lot of people I probably think haven't seen us talk about it in our Deftones video, which I'll it was one of our first head. discography reviews. Yeah. But yeah, this is. So I think at the time when we talked about it, because I was very being, Milgan and I were both being very defensive of Saturday Night Wrist and certainly looking for reasons to praise elements of it that had maybe taken a bit of a beating, whether from you or whether from just the public consensus in general. And so I was being, you know, I was trying mm-hmm. to like, you know, but the instrumental, you know, before you get to that spoken word part, the instrumental is, you know, really solid. It's got a good groove to it. And it's just the spoken word part about, you know, the butt fucking and the shit and all the stuff that that woman speaks about in the final minute of the song. You know, and I'm sorry if you don't know the song, what I'm saying right now must sound insane. And that's just how it feels. Yeah. You are Riley, listening- Riley's saying all of the shit, he means literal shit. Like not as in like extra or just stuff, like so, actual, like poop. Let me, like poop. Excrement. Let me, let me contextualize it here, right? So this is one of Deftone's most sprawling albums. It's made in the throes of some of the most dark periods of drug addiction that many of the members of the band were experiencing. It's not a very mm-hmm. fun album to listen to. It has a lot of dourness. Mm-hmm. It is produced in a really extreme, at some points, brick-walled way. It has a number of their greatest songs on it, and it shows them with a kind of carefree energy that makes for, in my opinion, a really compelling experience. But then you have Pink Cell Phone roughly three quarters of the way through the record, which is this kind of skeletal sort of minimal industrial experiment that cycles through this shuffling beat for about three minutes and then introduces the spoken word section where I, again, it is just the most disgusting, purely edgy and provocative coprophagia 
that you could possibly experience on a record like just butt fucking yeah. poopy poop stuff poopy poop whatever stupid bad and i was like revisiting it i was like surprised <laughs> at how much i didn't enjoy even the rest of it like i thought i did before it's all, not good all around the whole thing is just like completely mystifying especially like so in the context of an album that does admittedly flip from varying ideas and doesn't have much of a conventional structure to it really at all but it comes in between mm-hmm. a song like rats rats rat which is basically as close to black metal as deftones ever got with some real genuine like cookie monster vocals from chino and combat which is like pure mid-period deftones through and through really great deep cut song just separated by this again five minutes exercise in sheer pissing around and that's what it is much like every little counts on the new water album but to an even greater extent this is the sound of a band who's so fucking up their own asses on coke and whatever that they have no sense of quality control and seem to be acting with this sense of wanton abandon where they're ready to throw away genuinely great material at any given point purely for the sake of saying fuck you they were so disillusioned with their process at this point and again so addled by their addictions and look the album i think is on balance really great has so many amazing songs on it and a lot of the experimentation on like songs like the Konami code, Konami code track and the track mine with uh, Serge Tankian and some of the weirder songs in the back half as well, like F rats, 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 which I already mentioned. I think those are all bits of experimentation that I really value. And I think add a lot. Plus you have songs that are songs like hold in the earth, be weird, cherry waves, the incredibly underrated Cersei's some of Jeffone's best songs. Like this is a real grab bag album, but it's super rewarding except for pink cell phone which just doesn't exist on any plane of reality that i can justify it is pure fuck you it is a shit flung in your face for trying to give the album a chance and i've gotten colder and colder to it as the years have gone on so yeah it is absolutely of the picks i'm coming with today it is the one i have the most disdain for it is the worst one it maybe doesn't sour the experience in the uniquely god-awful way that every little counts does on an otherwise immaculate record because saturday night wrist is already in its own nature fractious and weird and full of digressions but still deftones are a band with such a great sense of quality control and immaculate construction even when they are making weirder records like this one or they're self-titled they still manage to pull it out of the bag and deliver in their weirder moments, except for this shit, which just feels like a big fuck you for buying the album. <laughs> so yeah, that I think is mm-hmm. one of the definitive picks for a terrible song that I would absolutely in a heartbeat cut from the record if I had any power in making this. Which brings us to the end of our discussion today. Let us know at home what are some songs you would cut from albums you otherwise love, particularly if they're the one song that is keeping it from perfection. It's a really interesting exercise, I think, and it allows us to get out some grievances and to vent a little bit on bands we love and albums we love that could just be that little bit extra better. 
let us know at home what your picks would be and what you think of our picks as well. I want to hear from you. want to hear your selections and thoughts in the comments below. If you enjoyed this video, please consider giving it a like and subscribing. If you haven't already, both those things help us out a lot. Plus, if you want to go above and beyond and support us directly, become a member of the Jams and Tea family, get your name in the title call of every video on this channel, plus get us to talk about a recommendation of yours in our now episode, then all you have to do is hit the join button for just $1 a month. Until next time though, folks, rock over London, rock on Chicago, goldfish, the snack that smiles back.